Hello and welcome to the PTP Podcast. Hey and welcome back to the Polishing the Pulpit Podcast. I'm your host, Wes Blankenship. Today's episode features Don Blackwell, the Executive Director for the Gospel Broadcasting Network. As you may know, Brother Blackwell recently suffered a very traumatic injury to his spinal cord, that has caused him to become paralyzed from the waist down. Brother Don has encouraged so many people throughout the world, and we hope that this week's episode helps our listeners in some way. Brother Don, if you're listening, we love you and we appreciate you, and you are in our prayers. Let's begin. Good evening. It is time for us to begin. Let's bow together and have a word of prayer as we begin our session. Our Father in heaven, we're so very thankful that we have this opportunity to be here tonight at Polishing the Pulpit. We're thankful for each soul that is present. We pray that you will bless us as we hear your word, that we will add it to our lives. We're thankful for the good fellowship that we enjoy. We offer this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. His name was Paul Kenneth Keller. He was born in 1966. You probably don't recognize his name, but he holds a very infamous place in American history as a serial arsonist. During a six-month period, during 1992 and 1993, he set over 107 fires that resulted in the death of a number of people. It caused more than $30 million of property damage. He is currently serving a 99-year prison sentence and will be eligible for parole in the year 2079. I watched an interview recently with Paul Keller, and it was very interesting. He said something that was very enlightening. They asked him, why did you do these things? Why did you set these fires? And this is what he said. He said, I'm not really sure why I did it. He said, I felt empty inside, and perhaps I wanted others to feel as empty as I did. You will know this name, Bruce Jenner. In 1976, Bruce Jenner won the Olympics. He won the decathlon, the most grueling event at the Olympics. He was age 26 and he set a world record. He instantly became an overnight supercharged hero. After the Olympics, he went on to be involved in professional car racing, tennis. He became a pilot immediately after the Olympics. He signed a contract with ABC. He got taken into the seventh round of the NBA draft in 1977 by the Kansas City Kings. He was doing endorsements. He was doing speeches. One night after he was uh, giving a speech, he said this, and I quote, Little did they know, I felt empty. I felt totally empty inside. I want to read you a quote. This came from a graduate-level college textbook. It says, and I quote, Many who were fortunate enough to achieve power, fame, success, and material comfort are nevertheless, nevertheless experience a sense of emptiness. Although they may not be able to articulate what is lacking in their lives, they know that something is amiss. The textbook goes on to talk about the large number of pills and drugs that are given to address this problem of emptiness and depression. They talk about the fact that in our modern day there is a great amount of interest in Eastern religions and meditation and self-help books and inspirational books, millions of dollars sold every year. They talk about the fact that in order to address this emptiness, people are experimenting with what they call different lifestyles. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you tonight that all of these things are evidence 
of the fact that something is lacking. The world is searching to find something to fill this emptiness, to bring them contentment and real happiness. But you know, this is not a new problem. This, this search is common. We see it all around us. We all know people who experience it. And the Bible tells the same story. In fact, it's the life story of Solomon. It is the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, why does mankind feel this emptiness and this loneliness? Why does mankind feel this existential vacuum? I want to suggest to you that it's because of Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. The Bible says that God made man in his own image. Now, I think there's a lot of things entailed in that, but I think that it primarily has reference to the fact that we have a soul. I am a soul. James chapter 2 and verse 26 says the body without the spirit, the body without the soul is dead. I am not a body with a soul. I am a soul with a body. I am a spiritual being made in the image of God. And that being the case, there is a longing inside of me. There is an emptiness inside of me that can only be filled spiritually. There's something within the spirit of man that wants to worship God, that needs to worship God. Now, some men deny this, but they know something's lacking. They know that there's an emptiness. Friends, a spiritual being cannot find fulfillment in the physical world. But you know what? This world is filled with people who are trying to do just that. And it frustrates them. And when they fail at it, they try it again. Or they try something else because they are searching. My assignment tonight is this, how to stop being miserable and start living the life that God wants for you. Now, when Alan first sent me my topic in the email, I got my PTP topics and I glanced at them and, and then I just moved them over into the email folder and, and I kind of forgot about them. I was mulling it around in my head and somehow in my thought process, I got mixed up about the topic. I was thinking my topic was how to be happy. And when I got to thinking about this, when I sat and looked at the exact title, I want to tell you that while these things are related, being happy and living the life that God wants you to live, while they are related, they are not the same thing. Now, I don't want you to get me wrong because I believe the Christian life is the best life. I believe the Christian life is the happiest life a man can live. But don't you be fooled into thinking that if you're Christian, you're going to be happy all the time. I think sometimes that new converts think that. You know, that is the message of the tele-evangelists and the prosperity preachers. They, they say that if you will make a large donation to Jesus, really to them, but they say if you'll make a large donation to Jesus, you will be rich, you will be happy, you'll have a great job, your relationships will be fantastic. And a lot of people have bought into that. A lot of people view Christianity as a kind of a, a get-rich-quick scheme. But you know, I remember when I read Luke chapter 16 that... Righteous Lazarus was exceedingly poor. I remember John eleven thirty five 35 that Jesus wept. I remember in Isaiah chapter 53 that our Lord is described as a man of sorrows. I remember in Job chapter 14 and verse 1 that Job, Job said, Man that is born of woman, that's all of us, he says, is a few days and full of trouble. Now, I can't be happy all the time. That's what I get out of that. Life, Christianity, is not going to be constant happiness. But while that is true, I want to suggest to you that while you can't be happy all the time, you can be joyful all the time. You see, joy is something that lies deep within. You see, a smile may last for a few hours, but joy can last forever. At least that's what the Bible teaches in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 16, where we're told to rejoice evermore. 
You know, when I was a teenager, we used to sing a song sometimes that said, I'm downright, inright, upright, outright, happy all the time. I guess kids still sing that today. And that would be good, I guess, but it's not really true. I mean, you can't be happy all of the time. As a matter of fact, people who are happy all the time, there's something wrong with them. Because happiness depends on circumstances. And circumstances are not always conducive to creating happiness in our lives. And so if you are looking for a point in life when you're going to be happy all the time, friends, you're going to be disappointed. You're going to find yourself empty because that's, that's not how it is. But you see, it's different with joy. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Now notice what he says, rejoice in whom? He doesn't say rejoice in your circumstances. Circumstances, sometimes, the circumstances are always changing, and sometimes it's very hard to be happy and rejoice in your circumstances. But he says rejoice in the Lord. Circumstances change, the Lord never does. Somebody said that happiness is kind of like cosmetics, but joy is like character. Happiness is something that deals with the outside. Joy deals with the inside. Happiness deals with the surface needs. Joy deals with the deepest needs. Happiness, they said, is like a thermometer. It registers conditions, but joy regulates conditions. Happiness evaporates in times of suffering. Joy intensifies. Now, brethren, God wants us to have happy lives. He wants us to have joyful lives. He wants us to have good lives. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10 says, For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil. God wants me to love life. God wants me to see good days. Now, how do I do that? I want to give you three points tonight. The assignment is how to stop being miserable and live the life that God wants you to live. Point number one, I want to tell you how to fail at this. Point number two, I want to tell you how to succeed at this. And then finally, I'm going to show you some areas in which Christians mess this thing up. Here's the first point tonight, how to fail at this. Now, the story of Solomon is the classic account of how to fail at happiness. There is no better model than the biblical model. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to let Solomon serve as our outline tonight. Solomon's life story is called Ecclesiastes. Solomon writes this when he's an old man. And he's looking back over his life and, and he says, I have spent the years searching for happiness. I spent the years trying to fill this void in my life. He said, I have tried everything this world has to offer. And he says, I have learned a lot of things along the way. Now, chapters 1 through 11, he tells us his story. And then in the last chapter, this is what he says. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, he says, remember now your creator in the days of your youth before the difficult days come and the years draw nigh and you say, I have no pleasure in them. Solomon says, be faithful to the Lord while you're young. He says, don't waste your life on, on emptiness and things that don't matter. Now somebody says, Don, you know, that, that was thousands of years ago. Things are different now. Times are different now. Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and verse 9, Solomon says, that which is done is that which shall be done. He says, uh, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it can be said? See, this is new. It has already been done in ancient times before us. That is, Solomon says, it's the same thing. It has all been tried before, but every generation has people that repeat this cycle. They turn to this world searching for that which it cannot give. And Solomon says, I've been one of those people. He said, I have tried all of these things, and I don't want you to learn it the way that I learned it. 
how did Solomon fail? What did Solomon try? I want to give you some of these things tonight. Number one, Solomon tried wealth. Now, I tried to start all of these points with the letter W. He tried wealth. That is, he turned to money. I have a quote from July 18, 2006 from Money Magazine. It says this, Whoever said that money can't buy happiness isn't spending it the right way. That's kind of interesting, but listen to what they go on to say. The same article says, you know that there must be a connection between money and happiness. If there weren't, we wouldn't stay late at work. We wouldn't struggle to save money. We would not work to invest it profitably. But then why aren't your lucrative promotion, your five-bedroom house, and your fat 401k cheering you up? They said the relationship between money and happiness is there, but it's complicated. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? They said, of course money makes you happy. This is Money Magazine talking, of course. They said, of course money is going to make you happy. But they said, so how come rich people are not happy? And they said, that's kind of complicated. Brethren, I want to tell you something tonight. We are absolutely convinced that money will make us happy. A lot of Christians are absolutely convinced that money will make them happy. I'm going to say more about that in a minute. The average American household carries an average balance of $15,956 in credit card debt in perpetuity. That means they pay it down a little bit and they run it up and they pay it down and they run it up. This is the average. They pay an average rate of 12.83% interest. What Solomon have to do with this? I read that scholars have compared Solomon's wealth to that of Rockefeller and Carnegie and Bill Gates. And they said, by comparison, these men would be poor. They, they would, in fact, the word they used was penniless as compared to Solomon. He was that rich. Listen to this. Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and verse 4, Solomon said, I made myself great works, and I built houses, and I planted vineyards, and I made gardens and orchards, and I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them, and I made myself water pools from which to water the growing trees of the grove, and I acquired male servants and female servants. I had servants born in my house. I had greater possessions of herds and flocks than all who were before me in Jerusalem. I gathered to myself silver and gold and special treasures of kings and provinces. I acquired male singers and female singers, the delights of the sons of men, musical instruments of all kind, so that I became great, listen to what he says, and I excelled more than all who were before me. Solomon says, there was no one richer than me. But this is what he said when you get to chapter 5 and verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with income. This too is vanity. That is, he said, I'm the richest man who had ever lived up to this point, and yet he says, it's it's, it's emptiness. Now, Money Magazine says, why aren't your lucrative promotion, five-bedroom house, and fat 401k cheering you up? They said, we we don't know. You know, it's complicated. Friends, it's not complicated. Solomon says, he who loves money won't be satisfied with money. It is emptiness. And listen to me. Here's the reason. No amount of money can buy you relief from spiritual pain. Money can't fill spiritual emptiness. We would like to take a quick break here to remind you that PTP 2019 registration is open. Be sure to complete your registration by July 12th to receive the early bird discount of $225 tuition per adult for the entire week. You can view the entire tentative schedule of over 700 classes and register today at polishingthepulpit.com. And now... Back to Don. Number two, what did Solomon try? Solomon tried wisdom. 
Now, by that, I mean education, secular education. That is, you know, in a lot of knowledge, a lot of secular education and book learning, maybe there's fulfillment there. And Solomon made that his goal. But Solomon found out that that didn't do it either. In fact, someone sent me an email uh, that was very interesting. It was about their, the, the county's effort to address delinquency in the first several days of school. It said, the community leaders, church leaders, and law enforcement are working together to ensure that parents know when school starts and to alert parents if, if students are skipping school. Parents who fail to get their children to school can be fined $50 a day and up to 30 days in jail. What's the point? The point is we are serious about secular education. Sometimes parents in the Lord's church are very serious, very, very serious about secular education. Our society has told us when it comes to your kids, there is nothing more important than education, nothing more important than grades, ACT score, the college they get into, the, the degree that they obtain. And brethren, sometimes Christians have bought into this to the point that they will keep their kids home on Wednesday night so that they miss Bible class so that they can do their secular schoolwork because they are so concerned about secular education. I want to tell you tonight, when they do that, they might advance them in the secular world, but they've also taught them a lesson in priorities. It's not a good lesson. You know, my child could go to heaven without a college degree, but he could get a PhD and lose his soul because he doesn't seek first the kingdom of God. Solomon determined that secular education is not what matters. In fact, this is what he said. He said, in much wisdom, there is much grief. In chapter 12 and verse 12, he said, of the making of many books, there is no end. And he said, much, uh, much study is a weariness to the flesh. Amen. And so Solomon said, I tried secular education and it didn't satisfy me. And friends, if that is your highest goal in life, it will not satisfy you. Worldly knowledge has to be in subjection to biblical truth or else you become what Paul said in Romans chapter 1 and verse 22, professing yourself to be wise, you become a fool. Number three, Solomon tried wit. Now, by this I mean laughter, humor, fun. Ecclesiastes 2 and verse 1, he said, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with mirth. Therefore, enjoy pleasure. But surely this was vanity. I said of laughter, madness. Of mirth, what does it accomplish? Now what is Solomon saying? Well, I've been too serious. You know, I've been involved in studying and, you know, maybe I just need to have some fun. And so he tried humor. He tried wit. He tried laughter. It didn't give him the answer. It left him empty. What did he try next? Number four, he tried wine. Now by this I mean alcohol. Look at chapter 2 and verse 3. He says, I searched in my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine. That is, maybe I can find happiness in alcohol. Ladies and gentlemen, how many people do that? How many people think that booze is going to make them happy? And I think the reason is it, it does make your problems go away for a little while because it numbs your mind. You think they go away, but when you sober up, what you find is you've got another problem because you've been drinking alcohol. And I think this is the reason some people want to drink all the time because it numbs their mind and it gives them that escape. It fills that hole, they think, and they just want to be drunk all the time. But Solomon said... In Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 1, wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, he that is deceived thereby is not wise. Number five, Solomon tried women. Now by that I mean sexual desires. 1 Kings chapter 11 and verse 3 says that Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Now why is that? I know that a lot of this was political alliances, I'm aware of that, but I suspect part of this is what we're talking about. 
He was looking to women. He was looking to sexual relations to give him pleasure and to fill this emptiness. You know, there are a lot of people who jump from one relationship to another relationship, from one marriage to another marriage because they're trying to be happy. The problem's not the marriage. Sometimes a man decides, I'd be happy if I went after this other woman. And he throws away his marriage and, and he goes after her and then he finds the cycle begins again. Many a young person has done the same thing. Many a young person has sacrificed her purity on the altar of a young boy's lust. Why? Because she's looking for happiness. She wants somebody to tell her that he loves her. I'd put pornography into this category. People turn to sexual indulgence because they think it's going to give them pleasure. I'd put homosexuality in this category. People think that if they can engage in these twisted sexual fantasies, it will make them happy, but it doesn't. And so it gets more twisted and more perverted, and they get less and less happy. Solomon and all of these women didn't bring him happiness. In fact, what his wives did was plunged him into the depths of sin. Number six, I call this one, I just call this whatever. And what I mean by this is whatever pleasure, whatever thing, whatever occurred to him that he thought, I'd like to try that, that would be nice, I'm going to engage in that. Listen why I said that. Chapter, um, verse 10 here, he says, Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep back from them. I did not withhold from my heart any pleasure. Can you imagine living like that? To the point that you say, whatever whim I take, whatever desire I have, whatever I want, whenever I want, I'm going to do it. I'm going to live that way. Now, somebody says, surely that would make you happy. You know, it sounds kind of like the modern-day rock star, modern-day rappers, the Hollywood actors. You know, they do drugs. They sleep around. They do whatever they want to do whenever they want to do it. Are they happy? They're not happy. They're some of the most miserable people on the earth. This is what Solomon said. He said, I tried any pleasure that I, that I ever desired. And here's the result. Chapter 2 and verse 17, he said, I quote, I hate life. How do you figure that? Whatever desire I had, I engaged it. And the result was I hate life. Number seven, this one might surprise you. It's the word work. The seventh thing that did not bring Solomon happiness and, and pur purpose in life was work. But how many people immerse themselves in their work thinking that's what life is all about? Chapter 2 and verse 22, Solomon said, For what has man for all of his labor and for all of the striving of his heart which he has told under the sun? For all of his days are sorrowful and his work is burdensome. Listen to this next part. Even in the night his heart takes no rest. He's thinking about his work in the middle of the night. He says, this is vanity, it's emptiness. And friend, if, if your career is your chief goal, you've got your priorities messed up. But how often have Christians chosen work over worship? I'm not talking about people that have to. I'm not talking about a man in the military and he's forced to miss worship. I'm talking about someone who chooses this. How often have Christians chosen career over family, promotion over children, advancement over doing the Lord's work, a pay raise over the local congregation. Solomon says, I tried all of these things, everything the world had to offer, and he says, it left me empty. That's point number one, how to fail at this. Point number two is how to succeed at this. How, how do you do it? We're talking about how to stop being miserable and how to live the life that God wants you to live. I'm going to give you another W. It is the word worship. Now here's our list. How can you have happiness, fulfillment, make that emptiness go away? Number one, I want to suggest to you that you have to understand your purpose in life. 
Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 13, Solomon says this, after trying all of these things, he says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. In other words, this is what I have learned from all of this. Fear God and keep His commandments. The New King James says, for this is man's all. Ladies and gentlemen, man is a spiritual being and the only thing that will ultimately satisfy him and fill that hole and make him happy is that which is spiritual. The King James says that we're to fear God and keep His commandments. This is the whole duty of man. The word duty is added. Literally it says this is the whole of man. The entirety of man is this. If you fail to do this, you have missed your purpose for existence. You know, a man may get a Ph.D. and cure cancer, and if he fails to do this, his life is a waste. You say, how dare you say that? If he cures cancer, how can you say that? Because God put him here for one purpose. If he fails to do that, he missed his purpose. You know, many people, I think, are empty because they don't understand why they're here. They think they should be happy. They think they should be entertained. They think that it should be about them all of the time. If they could get their purpose, that's the first step. Number two. I want to suggest that you need to learn to be content. I want you to do something. I want you to close your eyes. I want you to imagine that you're walking in the front door of your house, and I want you to look around. What do you see in your house? How much stuff do you have in your house? Do you have any clothes in your house that still have the tags on them? Do you have closets that are full of stuff? Attics that are full of stuff? basements that are full of stuff, garages that are full of stuff, storage units full of stuff. Brethren, to be honest, when it comes to stuff, you can't, it's hard to tell the difference in a Christian and a non-Christian. We are up to our eyeballs in debt because we're buying stuff. We're always chasing more. Why are Christians doing this? I think we're caught up in this. We are, we're falling for this idea that money's going to bring us happiness. That's why I put this point in here. The Apostle Paul said in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 11, For I have learned and whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. He said, I've learned. It's interesting he had to learn it. It didn't come naturally. He had to learn to be content. He told Christians in 1 Timothy chapter 6 to be content with food and raiment. If we would learn to be content, oh, it would revolutionize us. Number three, what do we need? Now this one's kind of counterintuitive. If you want to live the life that God wants for you, if you want to be happy, if you want to be fulfilled, be a servant. Now, you think, how can being a servant, you know, I'm talking about what's going to bring me fulfillment and happiness. How can being a servant be the answer? Acts 10.38 says Jesus went about doing good. Jesus put others before Himself. He came to minister, not to be ministered to, Matthew 20.28. I read an article from Reader's Digest from July of 2008... The article was entitled, Why We Are Happy. It was written by a man named Arthur Brooks. He is a professor of government and business policy. And he said because of that, he's always been interested in the concept of pursuing life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so he said he, a a few years ago, he came across some data that certain Americans were living in such a way that brought them happiness and other Americans were not. He said he was very intrigued by this. He said he wanted to be able to articulate which personal lifestyles and which public policies would make for the happiest nation possible. So he said he started digging into the data and he said he was very surprised by the results. He said it was not what he expected. The things that made people happy did not match what he had in his mind. He said the factors that add up to a happy life for most people are not what we typically hear about. Things like winning the lottery, getting liposuction, earning a master's degree don't go on to make people happy over the long haul. 
And then he lists five things that he said made the list, the things that made people the happiest. Number one on the list, he said, was faith. Does that surprise you? This is what he said. He said, in general, religious Americans, those who attend a place of worship almost every week or more, are happier than those who never attend worship. He went on to say, secularists, people who never attend worship, he said, are nearly twice as likely to say, I feel like I'm a failure. Now, to the point I'm making right now, to be a servant, he said this. This is also on the list. He said, the things that make Americans happy are charity. Now, that's interesting. He says people who give money to charity are 43% more likely than non-givers to be happy. He said volunteers are 42% more likely to be happy than non-volunteers. He said he was just blown away by that. He said he couldn't fathom that. It is rather counterintuitive. But, you know, I remember the words, of, the words of Acts 20 and verse 35 where the Bible says, Remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. Number four, if you want to have the type of life that God wants you to have, have a happy home. Now, young people, I want to say something to you. When you are choosing a spouse, the person that you choose can end up being your greatest treasure or they can end up being your worst nightmare. You know, Proverbs chapter 21 and verse 9, we kind of laugh about this sometimes, but it's true. The Lord says, it is better to dwell in the corner of a housetop. That is, up in the corner of the attic, crammed up there by yourself, than in a house with a contentious woman. What's he saying? If your household is not happy, you're going to be miserable. But then Proverbs 18.22 says, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains, listen to this, obtains the favor of the Lord. My wife has been a source of blessing and happiness for me for 27 years now. If you want to have a happy life, work on patterning your marriage after the biblical pattern. Good things will come. Next, number five. If you want to have the type of life that God wants you to have, I want to suggest that you read the what I'm calling the blessed passages in the Bible. Matthew 5 and verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they that hunger for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. What is interesting is the word blessed here is from a Greek word makarios, which really means happy, but not the shallow kind of happy. This, This is deep, spiritual, abiding happiness. And what he's saying is, if you want to be happy, the Lord said, if you want to be happy, the poor in spirit are going to be happy. Work on developing that in your life. Blessed, happy are those who mourn. If you want to have this, this deep happiness, work on being a person who mourn. Happy are those who mourn. That's, that sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? But those who, who hate sin, who grieve about sin, blessed are the meek. Work on developing this characteristic. And in so doing, you will be happy. Number six, I want to suggest to you, and this is the last one, it's the best one. I saved the best one for last. I don't want to trample on the lesson that I'm going to do Sunday. But if you want to have that emptiness go away, if you want to have happiness in your life, you need to get to the point that you have confidence about your salvation. When I first became a Christian, I didn't have confidence about my salvation. I remember that I would get to points and I would think, okay, I'm good. And then I was worried and I was thinking, okay, I'm saved and I'm lost and I'm saved and I'm lost. And and I was absolutely miserable. 
Christianity was misery for me. Brethren, I want to tell you, a Christian, there is nothing more miserable than a Christian who knows about hell and thinks that he may be going there. But 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13 says that we can know that we have eternal life. When you get to the point that you have that type of confidence, that you absolutely know it, it will radically transform you. It will make Christianity the most precious thing you have ever encountered. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 7 says this, And the peace of God, listen to that phrase, the peace of God, which surpasses, listen to this phrase, all understanding will guard your heart and your mind through Jesus Christ. This is a peace that only Christians know. And then he says, it surpasses all understanding. That is, it is a peace that is so deep, it goes beyond anything you can even understand. Brethren, when a person gets to the point that he is confident about his salvation, he's not afraid of death anymore. He's not afraid of anything this world can do to him because he's looking beyond this life. A person who has this kind of peace, he's not empty inside. He is living with a joy that transcends the difficulties of this world. You know, it's it's Acts 16. Here's here's Paul and Silas, and they've been arrested. They're thrown in prison. They've been beaten. They're in shackles. They're in a sorry, damp, stinky prison in the middle of the night, and they're singing praises to God. How do you do that? It's this. They they, they weren't empty inside. Here's the third point. I'm going to hit this one very quickly. Sometimes you have a person who becomes a Christian. They know about salvation. Maybe they get that confidence and they're living a good and happy life. But sometimes Christians mess it up. I want to list very quickly five things Christians do to mess this thing up. Number one is they worry. They worry. They don't have happiness because they worry in violation of Matthew chapter 6 and verse 25. Number two, they envy. Christians get envy in their heart and it will consume you in violation of 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 4. Sometimes Christians lose their joy, listen, because they hold grudges in violation of Matthew 6 and verse 14. Sometimes Christians lose their joy because they have greed and they get caught up in the love of money and covetousness in violation of 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 10. Sometimes Christians lose this joy and they have this emptiness because they have guilt, because they have sin in their lives and they have lost their confidence. I want to conclude with this. This is what Solomon said. Solomon said, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 13. Ladies and gentlemen, if you will do that, you will stop being miserable and you will start living the life that God wants you to have. Thank you for your good attention. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening. We would appreciate it if you would share this podcast with your friends and leave us a review on Apple iTunes or Google Play. For more PTP information, visit polishingthepulpit.com or search for Polishing the Pulpit on Facebook.